Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. In the Buddha, his teaching, and the fellowship most excellent, I take my refuge until enlightenment. We take our refuge until enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other transcendent virtues, May we attain Buddhahood for the sake of all that lives. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. There is a very short sutra, a sutra with only eight lines called the Subrahma Sutta, and it is tucked away in the connected discourses of the Buddha. And it's a, it's a section in which various devas ask questions of the Buddha. And devas are celestial beings in Buddhism. They have uh, godlike powers. Some of them don't have form. Others don't have gender or passion, and others do have form, but it's much larger than the human form, and they live longer. And so, generally speaking, they're better off than humans, but they're not yet liberated. And so in this collection of sutras, they each go before the Buddha to ask uh, a question or set of questions to learn from him. And I think that is, that is telling, you know, that they understand that there's something for them to understand, that they know that there's something they don't know. And so even though they have fewer problems than in the human realm, you know, not having a body, not having the passions, the passions associated with it, you know, helps in that respect. And still they understand there is something for them to, to see, and they're willing to ask about it. You know, so, so this is really perhaps the number one requirement on the path, to have an inquiring mind, to have student mind, to have beginner's mind, as we call it in Zen. And so this is actually, let, let me actually, because this is a good opportunity to just remind you of the importance of this when we do our private sessions, for, for example. 
You can tell me what you know and wait for me to confirm it. Or you can ask about what you don't know and together we can explore it. As my teacher said to me a long time ago, he said, you know, so we say this is like a tennis game. If you don't hit the ball over the net, I, I have nothing to hit back. And I, I've, I've said this before, you know, I didn't want to appear dumb. I didn't want to, to look like I didn't know. But I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, that's why I was there talking to him. I didn't know. And so since that day, and, and later on, I, I began to make a lifelong practice of asking. You know, sometimes with my fellow teachers group, um, I feel like the dumbest person in the room. They're so knowledgeable, most of them. And sometimes it feels to me like I'm asking the Shariputra question. And I know that some of them might think, oh, Suisa, you really don't know that? But I don't care. Well, I care a little. I, I do care. But I also want to know. I want to be free more than I want to be right. And so we have to reach. We have to, to really stand where we are and look and take stock and then be willing you know to put ourselves out there to be vulnerable to be transparent and ask so in this mini sutra this nano sutra given how long most of the others are a deva called subrahma asks the buddha he doesn't actually ask, it's not phrased as a question, but he offers this following plea. He says, always anxious is this mind. The mind is always agitated about problems present and future. Please tell me the release from fear. Always anxious is this mind. The mind is always agitated about problems, present and future. Please tell me the release from fear. And so in a succinct and I think a very elegant way, Subrahma, who's the son of a god, encapsulates the crux of the human condition. I have everything I need. I have work, a partner, food, shelter. I have relative ease of mind. I have health, enough. Or not. Maybe I don't have some of these things, and that's the source of the problem. Maybe not having these things, what I need to do is to get them. To get a better partner, a better job, a better car, better children. Definitely better children. If only, if only I had these things, then everything would be all right. Right? Then why isn't it? Why is the mind always anxious? Why is it always agitated? 
And notice the repetition in Subrahma's words. It's not accidental. He's saying this anxiety, this dread, is sticky. It's persistent. It follows us like a needy dog. Is there when we wake up? Is there when we go to bed? Is there where we go to work? Is there when we go on vacation? We're supposed to be relaxed and enjoying ourselves. Why? Why is the mind so often anxious, so often agitated, so often fearful? Because Subrahma isn't saying with that always that it is absolute. He's not saying that every thought that we have is plagued by fear, that everything we do makes us feel more agitated. Right? We know, because we've lived it, that life offers us plenty of moments of joy, of fulfillment, of wonder, of ease. But we also know that we have to be there for them. We have to be present enough, quiet enough to actually enjoy them. And I was thinking as I was preparing the talk, I, I remembered an interview that I did. One of the last interviews I did at the monastery with a, a young man who wanted to come into residency to the monastery. And as the conversation unfolded and I was asking the usual questions, why do you want to come? And, you know, what's your experience with practice? You know, the, the usual it surfaced that he was incredibly, incredibly anxious about going hungry. He was really concerned that he might not have enough food at the monastery. And he was so distressed about the possibility of going hungry that he really couldn't focus about on much else. And I thought to myself, you know, even if, I mean, if he comes, he, I don't, he might not enjoy his stay. And I kept trying to reassure him, you know, it, it, it really is okay. There, there's plenty of food. And yes, you know, there's, there's a few hours in between meals, but we can work with you. There's, there's plenty of options. He ended up deciding not to go. And I realized it wasn't about the food. You know, it was like when my friends asked me the first time they saw me, and I told them I was at a monastery. I hadn't seen them in a number of years. And the most pressing question that they had for me was, can you have snacks? And I thought, really? That's what you want to ask me? <laughs> and then I realized it's not about the snacks. It's about agency. They want to know whether I can make my own choices. And seen in that light, it was not an unreasonable question. Because in community life, your own preferences do take the back seat. They don't disappear, but they're not what drive your choices because you're committing, at least in part, to moving in harmony with a group. And that's a big part of community life. It's a big part of monastic life. 
And so when shortly after arriving, I said to Jimon, the head liturgist, that I wasn't hungry for lunch one day and could I just have a banana? She said to me, no. And she was kind about it. But she explained that we ate the food that was offered. And if I didn't want to eat, I didn't have to. But I couldn't just go and eat whatever I wanted. And I was miffed. I was used to doing what I wanted, when I wanted, to eat what I wanted, when I wanted. And I didn't like giving that up. Then I decided, you know, that other things were more important. Then I let go. I mean, little by little, and sometimes very, <laughs> very grudgingly, but slowly I learned to let go. Please tell me the release from fear, Subrahma asks the Buddha. Tell me the release from that anxiety, from that dread, from craving of various kinds. Please show me how not to be a prisoner of my body, of my mind. Do not be constantly worried about the past and the future. Another translation says about arisen problems and unarisen ones. Think how incredible it is, if unfortunate, that we have the capacity to worry about what has not happened and may never happen. That we have the capacity to fret and be fearful about things that don't exist at all. Because fear, when it's working, is a kind of alarm. It's alerting us to a threat. And this is how we survive. So it's not illogical. It's not unreasonable to be fearful. But, but when many of us look at our lives now, look at our situation, we realize that the fear, there's no other place that it's happening but here and that it is fuel but our thoughts. And why is it that the mind tends to fixate on what can go wrong? Now, why doesn't it naturally move toward celebrating all the things that could go right? What is it that we learn as we're growing up, as we're maturing, moving through life? that encourages that pattern. I think of one among many, you know, the relationship between uh, parents and children, and how sometimes those relationships can be very negative. Mothers and daughters, for example, fathers and sons. A daughter goes to visit her parents and she's very excited about this new dress she's bought. And wanting to bond with her mother about it, you know, she puts it on, she models it. And the mother just stares at her, her critically and he says, looks like you've gained weight. Are you eating, stress eating again? 
This happened to one of my friends. Or the son goes very proudly to his father and says, you know, Dad, I know what I want to do. I've really thought about this. I know what I want to do. I want to be a sound engineer. And the father doesn't even look up from his paper. and He's like, forget it. You'll starve. Always anxious is this mind. The mind is always agitated. We're anxious about looks, about social position, about power and wealth. And it actually does not seem to matter how much of it we have. Sometimes, in fact, the relationship seems to be inversely proportional. The more power and wealth we have, the more afraid we become to lose it. And that is what we transmit. That is what we hand down. Even though none of it, none of these, our looks, our social position, you know, our power, our wealth, none of it will release us from that fear. So how unfortunate that this is what we learn from one another, to be afraid as if that could protect us from pain. Because I think that is part of what, what is going on. You know, the, the, the mind thinks, well, I better be ready for the worst case scenario. And if it's good, if it's better, well, then that's great. But this affects the mind, this affects the body, this affects how we see the world. So much so that a 20-something-year-old decides not to go to a monastery to, to place himself in a situation where he can be liberated from that fear. But he doesn't know that. And the fear is too all-consuming. Now, he's not afraid of... Uh, he's not in physical danger. He's not actually in any real danger of starving, of going hungry. But he believes that he is. And so in this sutra, Subrahma, who most likely has everything he needs or wants, somehow he has understood that no matter how much he has, how much he tries to conform, that none of that will bring him the peace that he's looking for. And so he goes to the Buddha and he says, help. Please help me. I see the problem, but I don't yet see the solution. Can you help me? Please. Another critical moment on the path. The moment when we understand we cannot do it alone. Not because we're not capable, not because we're not willing, but simply because that's not the way things work. An ocean wave cannot flow by itself. It's impossible. A cloud needs sky and air and water and salt or dust and temperature. 
to form. Just so, we need one another. And not just to survive, but to actually grow, to thrive. We all need help now and then. And I've come to believe that it's a great strength to learn to ask, to not be afraid to ask, to not think, well, then I'm going to have to owe this person. No. I mean, hopefully, ideally, what is freely given is freely, what is freely asked for, sorry, is freely given. I mean, maybe you'll get a chance to pay it back, or maybe you'll pay it forward. That's not what's important. What's important is that you know in yourselves that we're connected, inevitably so. And to understand that that's a good thing, a very good thing, because then that means that we're never alone. And isn't that a relief? But in a moment when we believe, when we feel, when we're convinced that our pain is unique and lasting, what's required to be able to mm, kind of come up out of it enough, just enough to see there's more? to this picture, when you're, you're deep in a hole and you think no one has ever been in a hole as deep as yours, what does it take for some part of your mind to think, mm, probably not true? I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to hear the teachings and to hear them again and to hear them again, and to hear them again. And to let them go deep into your being. So it's not a matter of, of posting, you know, stickies and reminders, even though that's actually really helpful. But is that when you become steeped in Dharma, in this case, it has a chance to bubble up. It has a chance to simmer at, the at a time when you need it. You know? It's like when you think to yourself, oh, what would such and such do? I think that now and then, you know, what would my teacher do in this situation? And just invoking that, what would he say? And invoking that gives me a way forward. I'm stuck with a problem. I'm stuck with my anxiety. And I've said this before, and I remember something. A line pops up from one of the sutras. And I think, oh, okay, here's, here's the line. That's like the, the mm, Ariadne and the Minotaur. 
Is that how you say Minotaur? Is that how you say it in English? Okay. Um, you know, she, she, she left a, a thread so that starts with a T, his name, so that he can find his way out of the labyrinth. It's like that, it's just finding that little thread, because when you're deep in the labyrinth, you're going to need help to get out. Theseus, I believe. And so maybe Subrahma has been thinking about this for a while. Maybe he's been struggling. Maybe he's been struggling and flailing on his own. And he goes to the Buddha and he says, please help me. And what does the Buddha say? Not apart from awakening on austerity, not apart from sense restraint, not apart from relinquishing all, do I see any safety for living beings. So let me just take it and, and express it a little bit more positively. It's essentially saying, Subrahma, peace is in enlightenment. Peace is in simplicity. Calm is having few desires and knowing how to be satisfied. Ease is letting go and letting go some more. Apart from this, It'll be hard to be safe and to be tranquil. You know that Ajahn Chah quote I love to invoke, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll be free. But how is that even possible to let go completely? How is it possible to relinquish all, as the Buddha is saying to Subrahma? Does that mean giving away our money that we work so hard for? Does it mean not caring about your job or your title? Do we have to let go of love and sex and good food and I mean, you know, pleasure in general. That doesn't sound very peaceful or rather enjoyable. I mean, in fact, it sounds kind of miserable, so no, thank you. <laughs> I just flashed on, on Kensho, who was a a monk who stayed at the monastery for a couple of years. I love Kensho. He was, he was completely himself. And Kensho, one of the things that was interesting about him is he once ran so hard. He was running a race at school. He was 18 and had an embolism. And so could not remember anything from before the time he was 18, which was interesting. And I don't know if it was that, but he was very, there was something about him that was so kind of childlike and innocent. And he just didn't, he wasn't um, bound, you know, by convention. He was very polite, 
as so many Japanese are. But you know, if a group said to him, Kensho, we're going to, we're going to the movies. We're going to watch The Matrix. Do you want to come? And if he didn't feel like it, he'd be like, no, thank you. Not, oh, you know, I'm not feeling well, or, you know, I'm tired, or, you know, thank you for asking me, maybe another time. Just, no, thank you. I wish, <laughs> I wish we Mexicans were more like that. We seem like utterly unable to say no. Like we think it's impolite. And so we make up excuses. Or, you know, some of my friends do. They just, we say, oh, yes, 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 of course. And then we don't show up. You want to go to lunch? Oh, of course. That sounds great. And two hours later, you know, after the agreed time, you're like, where are you? Oh, I'm waiting for the plumber. I don't know. I'm not sure if I'll make it. Why am I talking about this? Oh, oh, no, thank you. Well, renouncing doesn't sound like fun. And sometimes the way it's presented, it doesn't seem like fun at all. And I was going to say, I don't think that's the way the Buddha meant it. But the fact is, I don't know how the Buddha meant it. Perhaps the Buddha did mean, you know, give up all your possessions and join the Sangha and be a wandering monk. However, given that most of us, well, certainly all of us who come to these talks are most likely going to live out our lives in the world. I think of this as him reminding Subrahma that there's no other place where fear and dread live, but in the mind. That that's what you have to protect. That's what you have to guard. And so he's saying, just keep things simple. It's not a matter of denying yourself what you want, but of working with that relationship, the relationship with what you want. You don't have to become a monk. You don't have to become an ascetic. You don't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. It's that famous line in the Mary Oliver poem, Wild Geese says, and then she says, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it does. You only have to let your soft body release what is not yours. It never was. It's actually on loan. Starting with the body itself. We read this last week. Pema Chodron's commentary to Shantideva. And she said, regard the body as a short-term rental. Take care of it and keep it clean, but not to the point of absurdity. Treat your body with respect, but not with a sense of ownership. The commentary to uh, the koan Senjo and her soul says, if you're enlightened to the truth of this koan, you will then know that coming out of one husk and getting into another is like a traveler's 
putting up in an in. If you understand who you are, what your life is, you will know that from moment to moment and life to life, we come out of one husk and into another. Just like a traveler going from one inn to another on the road. We check in, we check out, we move on, we do it again. Our bodies are on loan for the time being. All of it is on loan for the time being. And so when we understand this, it becomes just a little easier to let go. That's what the Buddha is saying, I believe. None of it is yours. Realize that this is so, and then you'll be free. You'll be free to pick it up and to put it down. You'll be free to hold on if you have to use it and let go when you're done. Not apart from awakening on austerity, not apart from sense restraint, not apart from relinquishing all, do I see any safety for living beings. I don't see you being safe by accumulating all the things we've learned will shore the self up. I don't see that, the Buddha says. I have not lived it, he could just as well have said. The man who had everything. In another sutra, called the Bhaya Bhrava Sutta, or the Sutra on Fear and Dread, he's teaching a Brahman, and he says to him, you know, when I was a Bodhisattva, I would sit in these isolated forests, these wild places, meditating. And sometimes an animal would come, sometimes a peacock would snap a twig, or the wind would rustle the leaves, and then I'd feel afraid. And I would think, is that the fear and dread coming? And it's interesting to me that he asks the question in that way. It's not like, is that fear coming up? No, I guess that is a question. <laughs> is that the fear and dread coming? And then he says, why do I keep waiting for this fear and dread? And then essentially says, what if I just stayed with it? instead. And he says, if I'm walking and I feel afraid, instead of turning away, instead of sitting down, instead of running, instead of doing any number of things I could do, what if I just keep walking? If I'm standing when the fear comes, what if I just stand? If I'm sitting, if I'm lying down, what if I just stay with the fear until I subdue it, he says. And as he does this, 
slowly his mind gets quiet, he gets focused and calm. He actually goes into the jhanas, the deep meditative states. But let's just say that he slowly liberates himself within the fear and dread. And we know this. We know this because we've heard it many times. And I think because we've experienced it. But it's not that fear will not come up when we're liberated. It's simply that we're able to see that fear, like anxiety, like stress, like angst, like grief, like anger, arises, persists, passes away. And perhaps we're also able to see that often more frightening than the fear itself is the thought of the fear, is our anticipation. That's often true of pain as well. We're afraid of being in pain. I think I, I shared with one of you that, you know, the teachings that work with mindfulness for chronic pain, the encouragement always is to get close, is to move toward the pain so that you can see that it is not a solid wall. That when you're really able to stay with it, you see that there are moments, there are pockets where it changes. It, it fades or it brightens or it opens. And teachers often say, it, it really go into that space because that's what allows you to move through it. Same thing with depression, for example. It is not a solid gray wall. If you're really staying with your experience, you'll have moments where you'll remember something that makes you feel joyful. But it's almost like the brain itself says, dissonance, tamp it down, must continue to be depressed. Because we think that safety comes from that singularity. Whereas really, the larger you become, the larger the container, the wider the range of experience, the safer you are, meaning the more grounded, the more stable, the more accepting of each of those moments of experience. You go out of one husk, grief, and into the next one in a moment, joy. And then you go into the next one, despair, boredom, whatever it is. You don't just check in into a hotel and live there forever. So what if, when fear arises, the Buddha thinks to himself, what if I don't move away? What if I don't try to avoid it? What if I just stay alert, resolute, mindful, courageous? What if I ask myself, what is this that scares me? 
What am I really afraid of? What if I look and I keep looking and don't look away? Is that possible? Can I do that? I've said many times before, you don't have to be heroic to practice your life. And it's true. You don't. You do have to be courageous. Courageous enough to do the thing that will liberate you. Courageous enough to resist the voice that will have you do what is familiar. That tries to convince you that that's what is safe. To be courageous enough that when you don't know where to step, or how to step next, you ask for help. Courageous to, uh, enough to trust that even though you may not know what that next step looks like, or what the help that you're even asking for looks like, that you will recognize it when you find it, when you receive it. Someone said to me after, right after coming back from Sashin, they said, I never stop to think, you know, that every time I take a step, the ground never fails to meet me. And they were delighted by this. They had been doing kinhin, of course, for many hours. And I said, exactly, it's never not there. How incredible is that? With each step, the ground rises up to meet our foot, our body. Whether we know where we're stepping or whether we have absolutely no idea. This is how it works, my friends. This is how life works. This is how practice works. We don't have to know. We don't have to know. All we have to do, which is a lot, is trust. All we have to do is have faith. But that's for another talk. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that they're always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha. And they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.